0: It's time to take the quiz. 5 questions, 5 minutes a day, 5 days a week.
1: Take the quiz every weekday at the quiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did.
2: Play, share, and of course listen to the quiz at the quiz.fox.
3: Now
4: from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson show with Guy Benson.
0: It is Wednesday, October 5th, 2022. I'm Guy Benson. Welcome to the Guy Benson Show. Very glad to have you here every weekday between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern Time. If you can't listen as we air live, there's a podcast. It is free of charge, on demand, every day. Our online home for all of those resources, GuyBensonShow.com. And if you're looking for that free podcast, you have other options as well, like FoxNewsPodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. We are coming to you live from the Hoover Institution at Stanford University in Palo Alto, California. We're here all week, and we have quite a lineup for you in store today. Before we get to that, I will just let you know, programming note, I'm on the Fox Business Network tonight in the 6 p.m. hour. Looking forward to that, probably toward the back end of the hour, the evening edit, so perhaps I can see you there on the TV side. Here on the radio, listen to this lineup. Later this hour, Dr. Mehmet Oz the Republican nominee for Senate in Pennsylvania. That is a toss-up race. Absolutely critical. Dr. Oz is here in about half an hour. In the next hour, Karl Rove, the architect, will give us his projections for the midterm elections. Very much looking forward to picking that brain and always enjoy having Karl Rove here. Glenn Tiffert is one of Hoover's experts on China. I think an on-growing ongoing, growing, and emerging threat. And we're not going to take our eye off of that ball here on this show. So he will join us in our middle hour as well. And then in our final hour, former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice will join me here in studio at the Hoover Institution, which she now directs. And we will have a wide-ranging conversation about the world, about the country, maybe some sports as well. Cannot wait to bring you my discussion With Condoleezza Rice, affectionately known as Condi, to the president whom she served, George W. Bush. So that is all ahead. Right now, a Fox News alert. In Fort Myers, Florida, President Biden and Governor DeSantis are meeting together. They are speaking from the same podium. And they are addressing, of course, the relief efforts and the cleanup after the devastating storm that hit southwest Florida and really did a lot of damage throughout the state. Fort Myers was particularly hard hit. Hurricane Ian bringing together Republicans and Democrats to help the people of that state. And there is an ongoing press conference right now where both leaders have spoken. And the president is at the microphone right now. Let's dip in live and listen to President Biden flanked by Governor DeSantis. Apparently... We just lost the audio of President Biden. (laughs) So that was not perfect timing for us. But from my understanding, I was watching just a little bit of it. It has been very cordial, very warm. Governor DeSantis went first and was praising the federal government and thanking them for the efforts and various things that the Biden administration has done in terms of answering the bell, answering the call giving Florida what it's need, uh, what it needs in response to requests from the Florida government and from the governor himself. So we know, and anyone who listens to this show is aware, that there's no love lost between Biden and DeSantis. There is a chance, I would say, out there in the universe that that could be a preview of a future presidential election. You never know. I think both men are acutely aware of the dynamics at play. DeSantis has been extremely critical of President Biden, I think rightly so, sometimes sort of tweaking him, referring to him as Brandon, which is a reference back to the chant that we've talked about here on the show. But we're seeing none of that from DeSantis today. And we've also seen, you know, from the White House in recent months, a lot of scapegoating and blaming and political attacks aimed at DeSantis and the state of Florida from the podium at the White House. Over and over again, they've targeted DeSantis. And I think part of that's because they fear him. They don't like him. But the bottom line today, at least for this chapter, for this moment, that has been set aside as well from the Biden White House side of things. So an armistice, perhaps, a temporary one. There's been a very bad natural disaster. In the state of Florida. The governor understands the moment. It is not a time right now for politics. It is the right thing to welcome the president to that state. And to the credit of both of these men, they are transcending politics to get the job done because there's a lot of people in that state who are suffering. And I think that's exactly what needs to be done. And I know there might be some people on the right who say, you know, Chris Christie hugged Obama and you, you can't really welcome Biden too much to the state. I think that's nonsense. People in Florida need help. They need a coordinated response from the local, state, and federal level. And it would be malpractice in terms of policy and politics for DeSantis or the White House to play games here, partisan games. There's not a... There's not a place for that at the moment, and both DeSantis and Biden seem to get it. In fact, here was DeSantis moments ago at this press
5: conference. Listen here. You know, these storms come, they're on the horizon. You kind of project, hey, it could be really bad. Oftentimes, it doesn't necessarily get to that level. Well, this was this was the full Monty. I mean, the storm surge that you saw through here uh, met the expectations, the highest expectations, and you've seen what significant damage that can do. Uh, so I'm just thankful that everyone's banded together. We've got a lot of work to do here, but I'll tell you, the spirit of the people of this state in southwest Florida has been phenomenal when i'm meeting with people that have lost everything that are 85 90 years old in shelters and all they can do is thank the Red Cross, the FIRE, the state, FEMA, for all the support, Uh, that shows you some of these folks. They are uh, thankful that they have so many people that are there supporting, and that's really, you only get there if it's a team effort. So, Mr. President, welcome to Florida. We appreciate uh, working together across various levels of government, and the floor is yours.
0: So I think that's exactly the right message, exactly the right tone from DeSantis. And then to his credit as well, Out came Biden, and we tried to dip in live in the microphone. I guess the sound had just dropped. But right before that, literally seconds before we came on the air, I was watching some of Biden, and he was underscoring, we're the United States of America. We have to come and rally around each other and get the job done when our people are in trouble. And so at least for now, I think high marks for both of these guys, because there's just too much at stake for too many people. And we live in a polarized, ideological, tribal environment. There's no question about that. It is, in my mind, something of a relief to know that when people are in danger, lives are at stake, livelihoods have been destroyed through a natural disaster like this or or other horrible events, there is still the capacity. For people known for sharp elbows to come together and work for the people, which ultimately is the job of government. So it's rare that you will hear me sit here and praise Ron DeSantis and Joe Biden for the same thing at the same time. But this was leadership. And I hope that this cooperation, at least on this front, can continue as long as it needs to. Because At some point, the news cameras are going to go away, but the wreckage will remain in Florida. And I know it's a political season. We're going to get back to, you know, the re-election fight, for example, for Governor DeSantis. I saw a new poll out today. Has him up double digits. We'll talk about that a little bit later on. Double digits. This brief political truce isn't going to last. But the cooperation underlying the truce... The reason why this is happening today, that needs to last for the people of Florida. So I'm very glad to see this, I have to say. Maybe that makes me sentimental or you might say naive, but I don't think so. And I know if I were a Floridian, I would appreciate this very much. And I have many friends who are longtime Floridians or new Floridians. And at a moment like this, you can't have petty squabbles. So, hats off to the governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, and to the president of the United States, Joe Biden, doing what they need to do here. So, we are just getting started on today's Guy Benson show. When we come back, we will turn back to politics. Some new polling data that CNN broke down. I'm sure this was not pleasant for their audience to hear, but it happens to be accurate in my view. I want you to hear it. I think it's particularly noteworthy coming from that network. We'll dive into that audio as soon as we return. Dr. Oz, Karl Rove, Condi Rice, and more on the Guy Benson Show today from the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. You don't want to miss
4: any of it. Stay here. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show.
0: Hey, it's Clay Travis. Join me for Outkick the show as we dive deep into a mix of topics. New episodes available Monday to Friday on your favorite podcast platform and watch directly on outkick.com forward slash watch. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. Thank you very much for listening. So I referenced this before the break. CNN did a breakdown of a new poll that we talked about ever so briefly on the show yesterday. New data, national data, and Harry Enten, who's one of their big elections guys, was on the morning show over at CNN talking about it. And Enten, I think, is a generally a straight, shoot, uh, straight shooter on this stuff. I'm sure he's left-leaning. All these guys are, with maybe the exception of Sean Trendy. But Nate Cohn and Nate Silver and Harry Enten and some of the others... The guy who does the redistrict Twitter feed, they're still sort of reliable analysts in a lot of ways, even though their biases and their proclivities are what they are. That's fine. We go into this with eyes wide open. So Enton is on CNN breaking this down, and you can almost feel the bubble bursting or the air coming out of the room in the studio and certainly in the living rooms of a lot of CNN viewers who want to believe that things have turned around and everyone's rallying around abortion all of a sudden and the Democrats are going to buck history in November. Well, Anton says not so fast. Cut 28.
6: All right, so this is a New Monmouth University poll came out yesterday. I shared this with our dear friend Eric Hall, who's the executive producer, because I thought this was really interesting here. Look, at the top of the list, extremely or very important, 82% said inflation. That's not so surprising. But the crime... Look at that crime at 72 percent, way up there, the second most important issue for the federal government to address. And then abortion all the way down here at just 56 percent, basically tied with infrastructure, 57 percent, well within the margin of ever of infrastructure. This split with crime being so high and abortion being so low was quite the shocker to me. Eighty two
0: percent inflation as extremely important. Seventy two percent say crime. The same sort of ranking as an extremely important issue when it comes to their vote, and then, quote, all the way down here at just 56% abortion, which is what I think the left and the Democrats and their media allies really were counting on to be their electoral salvation. People upset about abortion, and the Dobbs decision, they were working very hard, I think, to put out deceptive stuff and misinformation about it, and it's just losing some potency. In this final stretch of the election where inflation and crime absolutely benefit the opposition party, in this case, the Republicans. And Enton delves into that in cut
6: 30. This matters because when you look at these issues, which parties are doing better with them? Yeah. So crime is an issue that Republicans love to talk about. You see it in a ton of their ads. Why? Because which party do you trust more on crime? Look at that. Republicans at plus 23 points, plus 23 points over the Democrats versus abortion, where Democrats have a 17-point edge. Crime is basically the economy for Republicans. They love to be talking about the economy. They love to be talking about high inflation. They also love to be talking about crime. Democrats do not want to be in this ballpark. They want to be talking about abortion, which is the main focus of most of their ads. So the more that voters care about crime, the worse it is for Democrats.
0: Gallup asks a really interesting question, Harry. It asks people they poll...
6: If the issue that is most important to you, whatever it is, which party do you trust the most? That's exactly right. You can say anything that you want to. If you're scared of clowns, you could say that's the most important issue. And on the issue that vote that Americans say is most important to them, who do they trust more? They trust the Republican Party more to handle by a 48 percent to 37 percent margin. This is a huge gap, John.
0: And that's on the economy. So that's not just the one poll, Monmouth. This is now Gallup data as well. We covered both of these. It's just interesting to see CNN grappling with these realities in real time. And I think Enton is making clear-eyed points here about what is happening in this country politically with now less than five weeks to go until
6: Election Day. He continued and cut 31. It's a huge gap because when you look back historically – What does that tell you? Yeah, so an 11-point gap, which is what we have right now. And I look at all the midterm elections, all the midterm elections going back since 46, midterm elections with a Democratic president. This 11-point edge is near the top, near the top. And look at all all these years in which Republicans held this margin, this lead on the issue that's most important. And then look at the GOP House seats won. Obviously, we're not sure what's going to happen this year. But in all the other years that are anywhere close to this, look at that, 246 Republican House seats won. Two forty-seven, two thirty, two forty-two, and of course you just need two eighteen for a majority.
0: So, Anton goes back to midterm elections, tracing back to nineteen forty-six, and when he looks at a Republican lead by eleven points on the number one issue facing voters in this cycle, it's the economy, and Republicans have an eleven-point lead or in that ballpark on the number one issue. They win not just slight majorities but decisive majorities 246 247 230 242 if the republicans just squeak past with you know 220 something seats 224 225 that'd be enough for a majority it's enough to take the gavel away from pelosi it's enough to stop terrible things coming out of the senate and basically freezing the biden agenda in its tracks i'm all for all of that more accountability investigations from house committees that's all great but it would still be an underperformance if republicans don't crack into the 230 maybe 240 range which again based on this data not just one poll but now a constellation of data points it is at least looking i'll say plausible perhaps likely i'm not sure i want to use that word yet but more than plausible perhaps slightly probable that Republicans are back in a position now where we're not talking about a tiny ripple but a wave of some size a red wave of some size and so obviously we're not going to know and everyone will be on pins and needles heading into November 8th myself included you can feel like you have a sense of where things are going you can look at the polls you can look at the Polling failures, for example, in recent cycles, which we've really spent a good amount of time here analyzing in some depth. You don't really know until the numbers start coming in. And over the summer, I think part of what I was trying to do on this show was to keep even keeled, not go stampeding into this new argument, this new line of thinking that the Republicans were blowing it and the red wave was disappearing i thought that was a little bit overblown i also don't want to go in the other direction to say hey the red wave is getting to be a tsunami it's a big towering wave it's going to crash down on the democrats it's going to wipe them out i'm not sure if that's true it might be true it will only have a chance of being true if everyone who is sick and tired of democratic control of washington actually turns out and votes that is the key
4: You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson.
0: Broadcasting from Stanford University this week, it's the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. Thanks for being here. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is always free. Joining us now is Dr. Mehmet Oz, U.S. Senate candidate in Pennsylvania. Very big race in the Keystone State. He was also the host for years of the Emmy Award winning The Dr. Oz Show and an attending physician at New York Presbyterian Columbia Medical Center. He graduated from Harvard University and then obtained a joint MD-MBA from the University of Pennsylvania, their School of Medicine, and Wharton School of Business. He's performed thousands of surgeries throughout his career. He lives with his wife, Lisa. They've been together for decades. They have four children together, now some grandkids as well. Dr. Oz, welcome to the Guy Benson Show.
7: It's a great honor, and I should point out the smartest thing I ever did was to marry Lisa 37 years ago. So, 37. i living with her. I love her.
0: That's awesome. (laughs) Well, congratulations on 37 and hopefully many more to come as well. Let's start with this. Just the overall picture of your race absolutely has shifted dramatically over the last month. Polling showed that you were down double digits. People were talking about a Fetterman victory like it was inevitable. Your opponent, the lieutenant governor, the Democrat. And over these weeks, you have just been clawing back. Some of your attacks on Fetterman have really started to resonate and land. He has struggled to respond. And now, as of this week, the Cook Political Report has shifted this race back into a pure toss-up category. What is happening on the ground in Pennsylvania that you're seeing?
7: There's a lot of suffering in Pennsylvania over lawlessness. And let me unwrap that a little bit. There is without question an increase in violent crime across the Commonwealth. In some places like Philadelphia, uh, we have more murders than ever before in our history. Uh, the highest per capita murder rate of any large American city. We had our 1,000th carjacking this weekend. You don't, can't see people walking in the street anymore. Parents won't let their kids leave home. And this, not surprisingly, uh, is raising a lot of anger uh, amongst people. I was at a prayer vigil on Sunday night listening to some of these folks talking about the fact they just can't keep up. And the violence creates long-term post-traumatic stress disorder in the population. It doesn't just get better. So the question is, why do we have it? Well, part of it's because we have far left liberal politicians like my opponent, John Fetterman, who's advocated for releasing one third of all prisoners in the state, uh, wants to eliminate life sentences for murderers. He seems to care more about the murderers, actually, than the innocent. You know, on the parole board, which he sits uh, and he meticulously attends all those meetings, but he doesn't go to his other meetings. He's always pushing to get folks who've done heinous crimes off, even even when the victims' families don't want it to happen. And this behavior has uh, with a lot of voters, chilled them on whether he 's doing the right thing, does he have the right insights? does he reflect the values of the Commonwealth at the same time, not just here but across the country we 're having a fentanyl death increase that is shocking, and it 's caused because we have an open border, so fentanyl pours across not only is there a problem because it can come across, but the cartels are making so much money with human trafficking that they can easily invest. In in, in narcotics like dental and pump them into uh, the, uh, the United States. But in addition, my opponent, Betterman, in addition to wanting open borders, wants to decriminalize all drugs and wants heroin injection sites. Now, I went down to Kensington, which is where Rocky used to go. You know, that's where they filmed the movie. We'd go boxing in the streets. Yeah. Well, that area wasn't a bad area in, in you know years past. I went to graduate school in Philadelphia. I lived down here, but you can't walk in the street there now. You've got. People with needles sticking out of their bodies, just leaving hundreds of people living on the street corners, making it impossible for shop owners and their customers to enter stores. People can't go to their homes anymore. And, again, this is an example of far-left liberal liberal policies gone wrong. And I've been going down there for years to help, but I want to make sure everyone realizes when you have bad policies from far-left political leaders like John Fetterman who are not willing to look at the results of what they're doing, then you've got people who you should not put in the U.S. Senate.
0: Yeah, let's talk about what Fetterman's saying. His campaign is trying to say, oh, these are distortions. These are lies from the Republicans. It's not true. I don't believe these things. The problem is, at least from my perspective, maybe uh, I'm wrong about this. Maybe I'm a novice here. But it seems to me that when you have said all of these things on tape, it is sort of hard to walk away from them. And now he's trying to run away from them. But the record is what it is. His public policies are what they are, and his past statements aren't invented by you. They are simply highlighted by you. I'm not really sure how they get around that.
7: Well, the ads have been pretty straightforward. It's just him talking on camera about things that he's done and wants to do more of. And they have directly led to the crises that we're facing. I haven't even gotten to the economic issues where he criticized Joe Biden for not spending enough money. Uh, he strongly supported tax increases as lieutenant governor and as uh, the Biden tax increase to go through. He hasn't paid his own 67 times. Yeah. And on camera says that was just, uh, you know, it just slipped through the cracks. So you can't avoid this reality. But there's a se- separate part of their campaign. Uh, he unfortunately had a stroke before the primary. They, they didn't tell people about it uh, in a timely fashion, which is a separate issue. But he's managed to just keep quiet the whole time. He doesn't really campaign much. You know, he'll go out once a week and do a a public statement, but he won't take questions. He has not yet answered questions from voters on the campaign trail, has not answered questions from press on the campaign trail, hasn't agreed to debate with me until the very end uh, of, of this month when the absentee ballots are already out in Pennsylvania. And so he's actually hiding and trying to run the clock out. And although he sort of addresses these criticisms, up till recently, he's just been hoping that, you know, people wouldn't get it. But Pennsylvanians are smart. They're getting it. And as they understand the, the, the real threat that he offers, they start to get upset about it and start to shift their votes in my direction. But for everyone who doesn't live in Pennsylvania, this is why this race matters to you. Not only is it control of the Senate for the Republicans, but more importantly, if he were to go to Washington, the first thing he wants to do is to blow up the filibuster. This is the kind of person he is. He's really radical about these ideas. So without a filibuster, you lose the last real calming element of U.S. government. You'll be getting whipshawed back right to left with a you whiplash know, as, uh, as you know government shifts left and back right and back left again. We don't want that for America, and we don't want to put someone in the Senate who's going to be a destabilizing force as he has been here in Pennsylvania during his years as lieutenant governor.
0: It seems like the crux of his campaign is to say the word abortion as often as possible, to say that you're not from the state, that you're from New Jersey. To call you an elitist, and I think the new thing that I saw is that you, like, killed puppies or something like that. I mean, some of this does have an air of desperation about it. When you see those attacks, oh, you know, he's, he's from New Jersey, he's an elitist. What is your response to Fetterman, Or a lot of these attacks seem to be personal and cultural about you, not so much about his record or the issues?
7: It's a recipe for failure on his part. The voters in Pennsylvania are wise enough to make decisions based on how it affects their kitchen table issues. Voters are going to decide based on who they think will manage the economy better, crime better, and the the cartel-run drug trafficking issue better. That's how they're going to make their choices. And he can throw as many personal insults at me as he wants, but if I did well in life, and I have, and my father grew up on a dirt floor. I mean, we're very proud in my family that, as my dad was an immigrant, we were able to live the American dream. America is a wonderful country, abundantly uh, full of of, uh, of opportunity, and you have to work to get it. And I want that to be true for everybody else. People are not going to vote against me because I was successful. In fact, I often argue that you know people don't really care where you're from; they care what you stand for. Do you have the values of Pennsylvanians? There's a reason that the Fraternal Order of Police, both statewide and locally in Philadelphia, and the patrolmen—they're all endorsing me, not him, because they know that he's not supportive of the of their challenges. That I understand what it takes to run into a. To an environment where it's risky and protect both you and the person you're trying to help and make sure that the culprit is uh, apprehended. These are all me- important to have law and order in a state so people can feel safe going to work, you know, raising their families, et cetera. Those are the Pennsylvania values that I stand for. John Fetterman has a far-left perspective on this, and, uh, and the average voter, when they wake up to that, they don't want him representing us.
0: I do want to go off the beaten path a little bit and ask you about the issue of same-sex marriage, which has become broadly popular in the United States, although sort of a split among conservatives in the Republican Party. I'm in favor of same-sex marriage because I'm in one, so I'm definitely for that. I also understand some people disagree. We can have differences of opinion. Within the Republican Senate conference, for example, there are people uh, with both views on this overall question. Where do you come down On the issue of same-sex marriage, and I know that there's a bill that might get voted on perhaps in the coming months, maybe in the lame duck session, maybe in the next Congress, that sort of codifies the institution of same-sex marriage uh, with a vote in Congress, not just relying on the Obergefell decision from the Supreme Court that I personally believe is going nowhere. That being said, I'm just wondering where you come down on this, what your stance is on that overall issue.
7: Well, I mentioned at the outset the best thing I did in my life was to marry Lisa. Uh, marriage is the one covenant we sign with society. You know, We don't sign our birth certificate or our death certificate. Marriage is, cru- is crucial, and I want everyone to be able to have access to marriage, including same-sex couples. So I'm supportive uh, of the movement. I-, I understand the concerns raised by some of my conservative colleagues. Much of it is around the concern around uh, of religious liberty, that That's right. If a, ch- if a church wants to have a rule that's specific to their doctrine, that they should be allowed to. And I think – I know that we can find language that would make a bill both protective of same-sex marriage and biracial marriage as well, um, but also uh, protect churches and others who have different perspectives. And that is something that I think would be important for the Republican Party to get its head around. It's something that many Americans believe is its time has come, so let's do it.
0: Meanwhile, specific to your race, just some nuts and bolts stuff. I saw that you had a very big fundraising haul. I saw, what, $17.2 million coming into the coffers. You have been vastly outspent. The Democrats are pouring so much money into that race against you, and you've just been climbing and climbing and climbing. Talk about the resources, what you feel like you guys need to do, maybe not to match their money, but at least to get your message out there. And then I'm trying to sort of square the circle here on – Everyone, sort of the smart set, coming around to realizing, oh, wait, this is a dogfight that could go either way, even though the polling averages still show you trailing by four or five, in some cases six points. uh, I've seen other ones much closer, two or three points. I know the trajectory is coming your way. It seems like the momentum certainly is with you. Do you feel confident that you have the time and the resources to finish closing the gap and then pulling ahead when it really counts?
7: We're going to win this race. Uh, The numbers are actually quite close. And for a bunch of reasons, uh, I'm confident that we will prevail. But let me answer your question very directly. Uh, The Democrats are pouring a lot of money into the race. But the reality is that it takes a lot of money to sell something that you don't have. They don't have a good candidate. He's not not out there hustling the way I am. Uh, I'm I'm curious how uh, he's able to manage the debate in a few weeks. Um, But for many reasons, I think the average voter in Pennsylvania is going to feel more and more comfortable with me as their candidate. And with the momentum that we have behind us, we'll continue to surge. But you do mention an important point. I have to raise more money. Uh, although I put quite a bit of my own money into this with my wife, and uh, we've raised a lot of money, uh, the ability to keep up so our voices heard is critical. So if listeners would consider going to com, make any contribution that you feel is, uh, is worthy. Uh, all my information on, on what I stand for is also on that site, so you can check it out carefully. But I have to be able to raise money inside and outside of Pennsylvania to keep up with a tremendous amount of money pouring into Fetterman from mostly the coasts. And that's because a lot of the coastal elite want to have a 51st Democratic senator. So they're funding him. They don't know that much about him. If they did know more about him, they might not be so uh, excited about financially supporting him. But uh, we're going to either way prevail. And our our message is on target. We have a very good game plan as we head into the final weeks, and I'm looking forward to closing out.
0: Final question here, and it refers to something that you've already mentioned. I find – Fetterman 's record and ideas to be radical and dangerous for reasons that you 're really pounding in this campaign. He did have this medical incident a stroke it has debilitated him to a certain extent he 's not been able to really go hard on the campaign trail you 're definitely outworking him he 's partially still in convalescence here. You see video clips of him trying to answer questions and, and sort of muddling his sentences you know you 're a medical doctor, so in some ways, this is you know right in your comfort zone. Of trying to balance being compassionate toward John Fetterman and his health challenge, while also pointing out that you know perhaps he's not up for the campaign or the job. How do you try to strike that balance in a way that's appropriate and fair and not mean spirited, but also highlights, I think, a completely legitimate issue?
7: I have uh, huge compassion for what he's going through. It's my specialty area. He has heart failure, by, according to what he's the little the little bit he shared. Uh, with irregular heartbeats that had the stroke. So these are, uh, are issues I understand, and I know what he's going through, just having managed patients in that situation. That stated, as Pat Toomey, our current senator, whose job we're competing to, re- to take, has said over and over again, you have to be able to answer questions Um, And and do it on the fly with voters, the press, and other senators in order to serve in the greatest deliberative body there is, which is the U.S. Senate. He's not demonstrated that. He's not released his medical records. Many papers have asked him to do just that, and he just ignores it completely. He needs to debate more than just once, and if he's going to debate just once, it needs to be done earlier, and it has to be longer than a sub-hour that he's given us. He wants closed captioning and a bunch of other concessions. I'll help him anyway. I've agreed to those. But let me ask you more than two questions in a debate. That's not fair for the people of Pennsylvania to have to make a decision based on that trivial trivial interaction. And this is a crisis for democracy. If we can allow someone to be elected to the United States Senate who has never spontaneously answered questions in an open setting from anybody, the press, voters, me, well, then why would people ever leave their home? Just, you know, raise money. Run your campaign. Don't take the risk of going out in the campaign trail. You might say something that's wrong that ends up in a TV ad against you. And that would be a really unfortunate change for America. So for everyone here in the show right now, understand this is much bigger than just Pennsylvania, and it's much bigger than just this election. That's why if you can go to DrOz.com and support me to some degree, it would be great, because we do not want to reinforce what's going on in Pennsylvania by sending John Fetterman to the U.S. Senate.
0: Dr. Mehmet Oz, Republican nominee for U.S. Senate in Pennsylvania, one of the top three most important races in the country this cycle, in my opinion. Dr. Oz, we're so glad that you spent some time with us here today. Perhaps we'll talk again before the election. Uh, Good luck in PA, and we'll be watching very closely.
7: God bless you. Look forward to being with you again. Take care.
0: That's Dr. Oz on The Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back.
4: You're listening to Guy Benson.
0: Back here on the Guy Benson show, Carl Rove coming up in the next hour. We talked about this just total loss by Stacey Abrams and her group in the lawsuit against the voter reform bill and law in the state of Georgia. Just a comprehensive sh- shellacking in this ruling from an Obama appointed federal judge. She tried to declare victory, which is what she does when she loses. She doesn't admit it. Brian Kemp, the actual governor of Georgia, who's leading her in the polls, he has an op-ed out in the Wall Street Journal, kind of taunting her a little bit. Stacey Abrams loses again, this time in court. It's a good piece. Meanwhile, Abrams is trying to pretend that she was not a denier of the election result in 2018, even though, of course, she was. She's trying to rewrite history and engage in revisionism. The problem is, like we were just talking about about you know, with Fetterman, as we were just discussing with Dr. Oz, the tape, the tale of the tape, Tells a different story, cut 18.
1: I have never denied the outcome. And I do have one very affirmative statement to make. We won.
0: But I didn't lose. I got the
1: votes. But we won't know exactly how many because of how they cheated. I did win my election. I just didn't get to have the job. We were robbed of an election. Using the word rigged, using the word steal, do you think it's dangerous going into 2020? I, I don't because we can actually back it up. And so in response to what I believe was a stolen election. And I'm not saying they stole it from me. They stole it from the voters of Georgia. I spent the the interim 10 days between the election and my non-concession day, as we call it. Uh, (laughs) In fact, someone outside asked if I'm ever going to concede. The answer is no.
0: She's not only a sore loser and a conspiracy theorist and a democracy denier. She's also a liar and a bad one at that. Another hour of the Guy Benson Show coming up. The architect Carl Rove on deck.
5: Live
4: from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative. Guy Benson Show.
0: It is a brand new hour here on The Guy Benson Show, broadcasting from the Hoover Institution at Stanford University all week long. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for listening. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is free, on demand, every day. A reminder, coming up on our, next, on our final hour, which is one hour from right now, we will have a one-on-one exclusive Condoleezza Rice, former Secretary of State. She's the director here at the Hoover Institution. She'll be joining me in studio for a wide-ranging conversation, and I'm really looking forward to it. That's coming up one hour from right now. Fox News alert as we begin our middle hour. The Dow closed in the red today. Been on a bit of a win streak the last couple days now, shedding 42 points at the close, ending at 30,274. Very happy to welcome back to the airwaves now, Carl Rove, former deputy chief of staff and senior advisor to President George W. Bush, author of The Triumph of William McKinley. He's a Wall Street Journal columnist and a Fox News contributor. Carl, as always, it is great to have you here.
2: Well, great to, great to talk to you. And, and uh, I was on yesterday with the on one of the Hoover podcasts with uh, John Cochran and uh, uh, Neil Ferguson and, and General McMaster. You, you've heard the one about the economist, the historian, and the general walking to the bar with a political hack. and that, that, that was our podcast.
0: Well, it's they do a great service here to the country. They do a great job. It's always fun to be out at Hoover. And we are just thrilled to have Condi Rice coming up in our next hour. Carl, I want to start our conversation, focus on the midterms, with this soundbite. This was Speaker Nancy Pelosi on Stephen Colbert's show talking about the upcoming elections and what she's predicting will happen earlier in the week, cut 40.
6: What is your prediction for the election that's a little bit more than a month away? Madam Speaker, you have the floor.
3: Okay, thank you very much. Well, I'm so glad you asked that question because I believe that we will win the ha- hold the ha- house. And we will hold the house by winning more seats.
0: Okay, so the Colbert audience loves this. Pelosi saying they're going to not only hold the House, but they're going to gain seats. Based on what you're seeing out there, Carl, and all of your experience, what do you make of that assessment?
2: Well, one of two things: either uh, she is, you know, uh, sort of, you know, trying to uh, rally the troops here as they come down the close and and uh, cut their number of losses from uh, substantial to less than substantial, and you know, keep everybody in the fight uh, for the next four and a half weeks, or she's being delusional. Since the creation of the sort of party system as we know it, in what we call the Second American Party System in 1818, there have been exactly two instances in a first midterm election of a president where the party has gained seats in the House of Representatives. 1934 with Franklin Roosevelt and 2002 with George W. Bush. Now, she – you know, this president that uh, she supports is neither Franklin Roosevelt bringing us out of the depths of the Depression or George W. Bush with sky-high ratings in the aftermath of nine eleven. 11 He is Joe Biden, and his approval rating is 42, and uh, the Democrats are going to lose the House of Representatives.
0: Yeah, I think that that's been the assumption of most observers now for well over a year. Basically, the entire Biden presidency is like, all right, let's see what they can do with the amount of time that they've got with unified control because they're going to lose it in 2022. That is the conventional wisdom. The data seems to be backing that up, Carl. I know that you've watched this as closely as anyone else. Over the summer, you know, if there was a red tide coming in, maybe it receded a little bit. The indicators now seem to be flipping back in the Republicans' direction here. And we're getting into crunch time for this election. Based on where things are right now and trying your best uh, based on an educated guess, to extrapolate over these next, you know, four or five weeks. Where do you think this thing ultimately heads? What are we going to wake up to on November 9th?
2: Well, I think we're, the average number of seats that the out-of-power party, the out of power party picks up, the minority party picks up in, a mid, in the first midterm since 1934 is uh, 28 seats. Uh, I think it's going to be less than that. I think it's going to be in the sort of 20 to 25 range. But I think that's going to be because, uh, in part, large part, the Republicans did something extraordinary. They lost in twenty twenty the White House, but picked up between special elections and the November election fourteen seats in the House, leaving them at two hundred thirteen. Uh, let's say that we're on the low side of of my estimate twenty seats. That if they pick up twenty seats, they're two hundred thirty three. They had two hundred thirty in January nineteen ninety five when. Uh, Newt Gingrich becomes the first Republican speaker in 40 years. So, look, I I do know that that, you know, the quality of candidates matters a lot. And we have some knuckleheads in races that we should otherwise win. But I I, I just I I was I I saw the Colbert piece, uh, some tape of it, and I was astonished. I mean, she's a smart cookie. She's a tough operator and she's got to know how bad things are out there for her side of the, uh, of the aisle. She's, she, she has knows. to deal with these nervous members and, she, and yeah. she has, she sees the fundraising. She sees the polling. She's been through, you know, how many, you know, 20 some odd elections and for the house of representatives, she's, she's got to know what's going on. So I think this is just a, an attempt by the speaker to sort of rally the troops here and put a, you know, a, 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 a you know, upbeat face on things as they go into what's going to be a bad election let me, I would be shocked. I would be astonished if the, if the Democrats held the House.
0: Yep, I'm right there with you. On the Senate side of things, what is your sense of the landscape right now? And just to zoom in on one race, because we had Dr. Oz last hour here out of Pennsylvania talking about that critical contest. Another big one is Georgia, and there's a sort of explosive allegation in that race against Herschel Walker. Uh, we had Josh Krasauer on the show yesterday who said "You know, even 10, 20 years ago it would have been maybe a campaign killer for Herschel. These days he's not really so sure. Uh, what do you think about Georgia specifically and then just zooming out a little bit to the Senate picture?
2: Yeah, well, first, uh, we we, it will be interesting to see how it plays out. And I, I'm, I'm with Josh, who's a very smart guy. And I noticed a couple of other – even a couple of Democrats said, look, we, we live in a different era. We're so tribal. That, uh, that 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 uh, you, you say something like that about somebody, and uh, uh, the immediate reaction of his adherents is to is to reject it, and uh, of the independents to be skeptical. Um, having said that, uh, but let's see how he reacts because this is big, this is explosive. Uh, since the since the um, middle of August, he's been essentially uh, within the margin of error, either you know down a point or two, or up a point or two. Uh, more down more often than up but you know neither candidate is over 50 percent and all of it's within the margin of error and uh, my sense is if if a race is like that uh, at this point the natural momentum in the in midterm election from here on out is likely to benefit the um, the out of power the, the party that's out of power and uh, meaning the republicans in this instance so We'll see, but he has an enormous reservoir of goodwill, and he's not the normal candidate, and the way that he has kept this thing close is by articulating that his views and values are conservative in nature and more in keeping with the majority of the people of, of Georgia, and he's been held by the fact that uh, above him on the ticket is uh, Brian Kemp, right. who's running a terrific race, And uh, it's really funny. In Nevada and Georgia, the two places that are our best pickup opportunities, both of our candidates, Adam Laxalt in Nevada and Herschel Walker in Georgia, are being helped by the fact that they have strong running mates. The stronger of the two is obviously the incumbent, Brian Kemp, in Georgia. But Joe Lombardo, the sheriff of of Clark County, who's running uh, for governor on the Republican ticket in in, uh, Nevada, is proving to be a a great helpmate to – to Adam. Adam is from Reno, Washoe County, the northern part of the state, and uh, uh, Lombardo is the sheriff in Clark County in the southern part of the state that has two-thirds of the population in the county.
0: So it's an interesting sort of a balanced ticket geographically out in Nevada. We started the show today, Carl, with some of the sound from Governor DeSantis meeting with President Biden today, both of them being very cordial, talking about the joint Collaborative efforts to help the people of Florida after Hurricane Ian, sort of a rare moment of bipartisan unity, putting some of the rancor aside for the people who really do need help. I think that, you know, maybe I'm just an optimist about this, but I think that is exactly what we need from our leaders in moments like this. And I think it reflects well on both of them. I wonder what you think as you watch the politics of what's happening, because obviously you were President Bush. The politics of natural disasters can get ugly, at least at the moment. It seems like Biden and Desantis are doing what needs to be done.
2: Yeah, well, both of them are adults, and uh, and so yeah, they, they they do they are doing it. I, I I don't and and look, I want to compliment both of them. I do want to say I thought it was a little unusual that as the hurricane is approaching, the president of the United States did not pick up the phone and first call the governor. Mm-hmm. He picked up the phone and called the Democratic mayors of several large cities in Florida. Now. You know this all of the activity of the federal government with regard to emergency management is governed by the Stafford Act Robert Stafford Senator from Republican Senator from vermont nineteen sixty eight and the Governor is in charge when it comes to the state. The federal government doesn't deal directly with the cities; it deals with the governor and and the cities make their requests not directly to the federal government to FEMA, which is you know relatively small agency. They make their, their, uh, their request to the state, which, you know, sort of harmonizes them all and sends them well, all to the federal government.
0: That's how it's supposed to go. And I think DeSantis took the high road on that. He said, look, my phone line's open. We don't have time for political differences. And then Biden ended up calling him. Now they're meeting today together. So Biden maybe came around on it. And I think it's a good thing to see. Carl Rowe, former Deputy Chief of Staff and Senior Advisor to President George W. Bush. Carl, always enjoy it. Thank you so much. It's The Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. We're back, broadcasting from Stanford University all week at the Hoover Institution. And since we're here on the left coast, let's travel up the coast and talk about the Pacific Northwest and some very interesting races playing out up in Oregon and Washington State. We had Tiffany Smiley here on the show a number of weeks ago. She's the Senate nominee against Patty Murray in Washington. It is a close single-digit race up there in a very, very blue state. Smiley is out with an ad this week that I think is just terrific. I saw it a few days ago. It's direct to camera. She's standing in a place overlooking a coffee shop that's been abandoned. And we talked here on the show about how Starbucks made an announcement that they are closing locations across the country, not because they are unprofitable, but because of crime and the public safety threats to their employees, to their customers. We had a whole conversation about that here on the show. She is highlighting that problem in the ad. And in doing so, the ad plasters a few local headlines up from a local newspaper as well to fortify and buttress the point that she's making. Listen to Cup 39. This is the ad itself.
8: These doors are closed because it's too dangerous to ask employees to work here anymore. Think about that. For decades, Patty Murray has spearheaded reckless policies that lead to shortages, inflation, and so much crime that you can't even get a cup of coffee from the hometown shop on Capitol Hill even if you could still afford it. 30 years in the Senate, and this is what she has to show for it? If she won't do the job, I will. I'm Tiffany Smiley, and I approve this message.
0: Fantastic, cat. On the top two issues in the campaign, inflation and crime, she doesn't use Starbucks by name in terms of what she says, but there are those clippings, those press clippings, backing up the point that she's making. And Andy Noe has pointed out that Starbucks and the Seattle Times both sent a cease and desist letter on the ad because I guess they don't want to be associated with a political ad or a Republican political ad. I just think that's a completely frivolous cease and desist request. right? Starbucks and their leadership came out and said what they said. The fact that people noticed and it's being touted in political ads on the issue of crime – in the birthplace, in that city that's so associated in the public's imagination with Starbucks, that is not Tiffany Smiley's problem. That is Seattle's problem. And to try to wish it away or to basically say, oh, no, don't, don't mention or reference our company in the context of publicly available newsworthy events is just, I think, a woke, left-leaning corporation not wanting a reality that they have had to acknowledge To be used in any way, at least associated with them, to potentially harm the Democratic Party. Even though I would argue that the Democratic Party deserves to be harmed electorally on this front. And I'm also amazed that a newspaper would say, oh, you can't use our headlines. I mean, that is a real tell about journalists. You know, truth to power, but don't you amplify the truth if it's going to help a Republican. ick, we don't want that. It's a great ad. It's making, I think, a blindingly obvious point that needs to be made loudly and repeatedly. And if anything, I think Smiley should throw the cease and desist letters in the garbage and make another ad just like it. It is effective. Meanwhile, in Oregon, just south of Washington state, there is, as I mentioned yesterday, an extremely tight gubernatorial race in that state. It's a three-way race. There's a Democrat, an Independent, and a Republican Lefties seem to be splitting between the Democrat and the Independent. And so based on now three or four polls in the last couple of weeks, Republican Christine Drazen is just by a nose leading in that contest. And I think that she has acquitted herself quite well in debates. I've been watching that race from afar. And at a recent debate, this was her closing statement, an indictment of the status quo and the people responsible for it, I think this is almost pitch perfect from Christine Drazen. Listen to Cut 20.
3: As I've traveled the state and had the opportunity to talk to Oregonians in every corner of our state, they have shared with me their hopes, their dreams, their fears, and their frustrations. And what I have heard from so many Oregonians is this is it. We either fix it in this election cycle, we get this done, or they're going to close up shop, or they're going to move. For me personally, I think about whether or not my own kids are going to choose to make Oregon their home long-term, if they can afford to buy a house, if they'll find a good job. Our state is in a very, very difficult position after a decade of single-party control. I ask Oregonians, are you better off today than you were four years ago? If the answer is no, then the answer is change. The people on the stage with me today have been responsible for our decade of decline in our state. They have held the reins. They have been in charge. They have held the power. If you feel like our state is a mess, if you feel like homelessness is a challenge and our streets are not safe and our schools are not strong enough, I would ask for you to join me. I am committed to serving Oregonians, to being a governor for all Oregonians and leading our state in a new direction.
0: A couple of dynamic female Republican nominees up in the Pacific Northwest, Christine Drazen has a real chance of winning the governorship in Oregon. Tiffany Smiley, more of a dark horse, but giving Patty Murray all she can handle up in Washington. And you have to think, under these circumstances, with these quality candidates, if not now, then when? Will Republicans ever win statewide in these types of states if they can't under these conditions? So I'll be watching late into the night with some curiosity about what happens up in Oregon and in Washington, where there are also some interesting down-ballot races as well. So I don't want to just give them short shrift and write off those states as irretrievably blue. They might be, but it's awfully interesting here in 2022 with the midterms coming up in a matter of weeks. We'll step aside. We'll come back. It's the Guy Benson Show. Don't go anywhere.
4: talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson.
0: Halfway through today's show and halfway through the week as well, here on the Guy Benson Show, thank you very much for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast, as always, free and on demand when the show is over. GuyBensonShow.com. Well, joining me now here in studio at the Hoover Institution is Glenn Tiffer, who's a research fellow here. He's an historian on modern China, and he co-chairs the Hoover Project Project on China's global sharp power and Glenn, it's great to have you
9: thank you guys a pleasure to be here
0: so let's just start with this during the break you were talking about something that you believe will enter the more common parlance in geopolitical circles in the coming years and that is the global security initiative that the CCP and Xi Jinping rolled out last year what is it why does it matter
9: So in April, Xi Jinping announced this global security initiative, and it's his larger vision for rewiring the international legal and political order to decenter the United States, to bring the global south, that is those nations in Africa, Latin America, South Asia, Southeast Asia, underneath the leadership of the CCP and China, to reorient them into a sort of loose alliance or coalition of countries that can um, pursue their own interests independent of the United States, independent of Europe, independent of the West and increasingly to isolate the United States in the world. And we see this playing out already in various international forums, like if you look at the votes in the U.N. about whether to censure Russia or not, you see countries lining up where it's very much the West against the rest. China wants to seize the initiative on that and bring them under its umbrella.
0: Would that be a coalition of the willing or a coalition of the coerced? Because you see with Belt and Road, for example, The Chinese want to get their economic tentacles into places, and then basically they've got those governments over a barrel. So I don't know. An alliance, in my mind, tends to be ideal and work best when everyone is happy to be there and wanting to be there. China is maybe building this alliance slightly differently, which might be effective in some ways but also has its weaknesses.
9: I think the Belt and Road is a great analogy. China is saying all the right things in terms of the global security initiative. Just
0: remind people about Belt and Road and what that is.
9: Sure. Belt and Road was announced in 2013. It was a policy by which China essentially was going to make immense amounts of aid and largely loans to the developing world available to build infrastructure, to develop raw materials, create markets for Chinese goods. And essentially China lent countries, particularly in Africa, but also Latin America, Pakistan, immense amounts of money to build things that those countries actually need but that they can't pay for themselves and it created these giant loan traps and now countries particularly as interest rates go up in the recent months are teetering on the edge of debt crises so it's a major major problem And they're beholden now
0: to They Beijing. are.
9: It's, it's more complicated than that because China's also beholden to them. They can't really, they, they can't sit, send gunboats to seize territory in these countries anymore. Well, that's not the way the world works. Maybe it did in the 19th century. So China's also got trouble. It's billions of dollars in the hole. You know, it's that sort of joke where I lend you a hundred bucks um, or the bank lends you a hundred bucks and you're on the hook. The bank lends you a hundred million bucks, they're on the hook. Mm-hmm. China's very much on the hook in these countries. It's probably never going to get paid back. But then again, the Belt and Road was never about the commercial or financial interests. It was about political interests. It was ensuring that countries begin to reorient themselves towards China, and in particularly the, uh, the elite classes in these countries, many of whom were engaged in corrupt deals. So the Global Security Initiative is similar. China's saying all the right things. It's saying we want to combat American hegemony. You know, developing world, aren't you tired of the West telling you how to live your lives? China's going to come here, free you. We understand what developing countries want. We understand what it's like to be in the global South. So let's come together under an alliance of principles that are different than the West, anti-hegemonic. And to the extent that you want to buy in, you can buy in. We'll provide cover for you. And then when it comes to voting in the UN, for example, when the United States wants to criticize China on its human rights record, then it sort of calls in those chits and people will, you know, support China and you'll get votes that that show basically West against the rest. So it's a loose coalition, but it matters globally um, in terms of of influence and it matters in terms of U.S. strategy around the world.
0: Does anyone really believe, though, that the Chinese ultimately are doing this because they're anti-hegemony? Don't they want to be the new hegemon? Isn't that the whole point? They want to supplant us. And I think it's just – Naive for anyone to think otherwise.
9: Absolutely, but countries make their calculations based on what's good for them. So right. if China provides them, at a least little in bit the of cover, exactly. So and and a, a large number of countries right now are in fact playing both sides to get the best deal they possibly can. And you know, more power to them, I guess, when it gives you a stronger negotiating hand with the United States. If China is another bidder, another suitor, that will swoop in right behind the U.S. if the U.S. doesn't step up. So I think you're absolutely right. For China, this is an opportunity to um, neutralize its near abroad. If you look on a map, for example, there's a lot. China inhabits a bad neighborhood. There are a lot of countries on the periphery that are unstable countries that have potential um, political problems that are connected, in particular, to Xinjiang in China, which is a region which people have heard about because of the human rights concerns. The genocide. Exactly. The genocide. But there's also a lot of potential political instability. There were major riots connected to racial uh, concerns in that in that region of China. And to the extent that China can work with governments nearby, it can neutralize the own internal political instability problems it has at home. So this is also an effort of the Global Security Initiative to create peaceful conditions for China to prosper internally. Hmm.
0: As we think about the designs of the ccp and i'm sure we'll get into this a little bit with secretary rice coming up in the next hour but i'm curious what you think is the united states both in terms of our government but also our economic power our companies our private corporations collectively are we in america and we in the west taking this challenge or really threat is what i see it as seriously enough because they seem deadly serious about it they have all sorts of huge problems and i think they're system doesn't work and ultimately is corrupt. However, they need to have, in my view, a determined opposition in the West that's actually confident in our own values. And it seems to me, at least right now, that maybe we're, we're not terribly serious or terribly confident at the moment.
9: I think you're absolutely right. China's not 10 feet tall, but where China does excel is it has tremendous capacity to mobilize its own resources towards particular goals. It's an authoritarian country. Xi Jinping says, these are my priorities. Everyone falls in more or less lockstep, and then they execute. The U.S. has tremendous strengths. We come in with a stronger hand than China, but we have coordination problems. Uh, The president, whoever occupies the White House, issues policies, and then it's a process of negotiation with the Congress. It's a process of negotiation with American corporations whose interests may point in different directions. And so the challenge for us, I think, is we're aware of the risks, we're aware of of the choices that we need to make, but simply organizing ourselves so that we all align in the same direction, I think, is the hard part.
0: Yeah, we seem much more interested in attacking each other and the internal political machinations And, you know, partisan food fights then sort of unifying around serious emerging threats abroad. And I just hope it's not a situation where we're sort of out to lunch until it's too late. That's why I think these types of conversations are very important. You know, meanwhile, in Beijing, Xi Jinping is, I think, watching and has been now for months with great interest what's happening in Ukraine and what's happening vis-a-vis Vladimir Putin and the West and I think a real rally around The values flag from the West. It's been heartening overall in my mind. I wonder what lessons you think the CCP writ large is deriving from the Ukraine crisis and Russia's, frankly, floundering in that war.
9: Right. So democracies generally can get their acts together, but they do it too late. You know, it's very hard to mobilize us in time. And I think Ukraine's a perfect example of that. We saw Putin move into Ukraine in Crimea in 2014 and 2015. We had the opportunity to do a lot more. We didn't. I think there were folks who said that perhaps he would be satisfied. You know, what's done is done. Move on. Um, had we made certain choices in 2015, 16, 17, 18, and 19, I think we would have been in a very different position in 2022. We didn't make those choices. We shouldn't make the same mistakes with regard to China. Um, mobilizing ourselves with regard to Taiwan, I think, is key here. What does that look like? Fortunately, people are waking up to this problem now. Um, there's a, China could draw two lessons from what's happening in Ukraine. One, China could say, oh, my gosh, this is not going to be as easy as we thought it might be. Look at what, what's happened to the Russians in Ukraine, where an army that we thought was quite powerful and outgunned the Ukrainians uh, has been sort of fought to a standstill and now is actually in retreat. And right, they're losing. And they're losing, exactly. This should give China's generals pause about Taiwan. Now, obviously, Taiwan's a different situation, but creating uncertainty is what we need to do, raising the risk that something will go wrong, that the costs for China to invade Taiwan or even to blockade Taiwan would be such that they don't want to do it. Now, the dangerous thing is that Xi Jinping has a higher appetite for risk than previous Chinese leaders. So we need to raise the costs and raise the uncertainty Mm. even more for him. And that's
0: what the mobilizing looks like, sort of mind games is not the right word, but really forcing a hard, difficult second look perhaps at something that he might really want to do.
9: Absolutely. Now, he might draw the other lesson, and we need to be concerned about that is, um, and this is, this is consistent with his personality, he might say that Putin's mistake is that he didn't go in hard enough, fast enough. You'll recall that when the war began in Ukraine, they tried to seize an airbase outside of Kiev, right? Lightning strike, but that went wrong, and then they lost the initiative. So Xi Jinping's lesson might be, well, no, I have to go in twice as hard, twice as fast. And the West will sit there and watch me mobilize as we did Putin, yet do nothing. Um, until the tanks start rolling so we have to be careful of that scenario as well what do we need to do in the next few years we need to harden taiwan you know the the word that's often used is turn taiwan into a porcupine those are words right now fortunately we are mobilizing and working with the taiwanese to start equipping them with lightweight cheap redundant hardware that's expendable not the super fancy do stuff. you think we have a few years I think we do have a few years because the military analysts will say that t- that the Chinese military doesn't have the sea lift capability to mount an amphibious invasion of Taiwan yet. They're building it. We can watch them build it five years, eight years from now. Hmm. The scenario will be quite different. And then Xi Jinping will have options that he doesn't have today.
0: Glenn Tiffert, research fellow here at the Hoover Institution. He's a historian on modern China, co-chair of the Hoover Project on China's global sharp power, I think, An extremely important conversation that we will continue to have here on the Guy Benson Show. And, Glenn, it's great to see you.
9: Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure.
0: We'll be right back on the Guy Benson Show after this. The Guy Benson Show.
4: More next.
0: We continue here on the Guy Benson Show. I want to highlight an issue that we've talked about before which is the problem with so-called fact-checking and fact-checkers. They are these self-appointed guardians of truth. They say they get to be the arbitrators of who is right, who is wrong. And the problem is, a lot of the time, they are bad at their jobs, and they are, in fact, political hacks. I think some do a better job than others. Not everyone is terrible at it. I think that there's a good-faith effort to get to the truth by some of them. But the dregs, I'm sorry to say is an organization called PolitiFact, which wraps itself in journalism and truth-seeking, and they try to present themselves to voters and particularly to the news media as an independent group. And what they'll do sometimes is ding Democrats for false things that they say, just to give a pretense of even-handedness. Oh, see, no, we said Barack Obama told the lie of the year. Once about Obamacare. Now, of course, they had been propping Obama's talking points up. It was about Obamacare for years. And only after the lie was fully exposed and undeniable did PolitiFact change their rating from saying Barack Obama was telling the truth to actually never mind, LOL, it's the lie of the year. They had no choice at that point because reality was playing out before everyone's eyes. That was about being able to keep your plan. Remember that line from Barack Obama? But they would still cite that lie of the year as proof, supposedly, that they are fair-minded actors. However, this has been documented over and over again. They go after Republicans harder. They fact-check Republicans and conservatives more often in terms of negative fact-checks. And they also, at PolitiFact, have this amazing penchant for taking... Absolutely true statements by Republicans and finding ways to turn them into less true ratings, like half true or mostly false, even if it's true, and then take false things that are said by Democrats and launder them, basically, to make them seem more true than they are. And they often do this by adding context, is what they call it. And look, I think context is important. I think sometimes things are taken out of context, and that can be misleading or deceiving. I'm not in favor of that. What I'm also not in favor of is doing what PolitiFact does on the regular, which is to basically grab some context, basically grab some context that might be tangentially related. And use that to try to turn the fact-check ranking or their final rating into something more palatable to them. Namely, something that is more harmful to Republicans and more helpful to Democrats. Which is why I call accurately, not officially, but in terms of like de facto how it plays out, PolitiFact is a left-leaning, Democrat-aligned, so-called fact-checker. That's the backdrop here. Two new examples of it just in the last 24 hours. Politifact has looked into an ad from J.D. Vance in Ohio. He's the Republican taking on Tim Ryan. And the ad portrays Ryan as a lockstep supporter of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. And they have a quick clip of Ryan saying, I love her, speaking of Pelosi. And he has voted, more importantly, with Pelosi Biden 100% of the time. Right? Tim Ryan's trying to present himself as this independent blue-collar guy in Ohio who's really fed up with both parties, except his voting record is 100% with Joe Biden in this Congress. He referred to Chuck Schumer as his next boss if he won the Senate seat, which I think was a Freudian slip, right? He would treat Schumer as his boss because that's what he's done with Pelosi. That's the point of the ad. And what PolitiFact does is they run through the facts in this fact check of the ad, and they say, well, yes – He votes completely with the Democratic leadership, but six years ago, he had this fanciful, basically fake run for Speaker where he challenged Pelosi for Speaker in the leadership race, I think, to try to burnish some of his independent credentials at home. It went nowhere, and because of that, it is only half true, the ad, because of this completely unrelated thing that's not actually refuting the point ...that J.D. Vance and his team are making in the ad. It's only half true, according to PolitiFact, even though it is undeniably true. The other example of this also comes from PolitiFact. We played the sound of Governor Ron DeSantis in Florida. He's been challenged, why didn't this county do an evacuation order sooner? And he said, well, because the cone and the projection of where the storm was going, it shifted late. We were expecting it to hit farther north, then it didn't. As soon as it moved, then we adjusted accordingly. Now, PolitiFact has looked at that statement, and they have rated it mostly false. Why? Even though almost all of Lee County was out of that cone, as DeSantis said, at the time and the timeline that DeSantis laid out, apparently a fraction of one island with almost no inhabitants that is technically in Lee County was within the cone. And therefore, it wasn't completely true that the county entirely was not in that danger zone yet because of a sliver of one island. And due to that, PolitiFact has decided that DeSantis's broadly absolutely right statement is mostly false. So they're trying to make it seem like he's lying about the hurricane as they try to Katrina this thing, as we've been talking about. It's not working. New poll out today, Mason Dixon, Ron DeSantis leading by 11 points in his re-election bid. But, boy, the Democrats and their allies are trying, and they don't really have a stronger ally than PolitiFact, a phony fact-checker that's really trying to help pull some Democrats across the finish line here. Let's hope that they do not succeed. Final hour of the Guy Benson Show coming up next. You don't want to miss this. Former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice joins me in studio It is our final hour here on The Guy Benson Show on this Wednesday, the happy hour sponsored by our friends at The finished Long Drink, thelongdrink.com. For more information, always drink responsibly, 21-plus only. Our website here, guybensonshow.com. Podcast is always free on demand. Guybensonshow.com, foxnewspodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Joining me now is Dr. Condoleezza Rice, who served from 2005 to 2009 as the 66th Secretary of State of the United States of America under President Bush, She is now the director of the Hoover Institution, where we're broadcasting from, a senior fellow here as well. She's authored numerous books, most recently To Build a Better World, Choices to End the Cold War, and Create a Global Commonwealth. Madam Secretary, it's great to see you again.
1: It's great to see you, too. Thanks for having me on.
0: It's my pleasure. So we've had the privilege of broadcasting from Hoover now three or four times. It's always great to be back here. Since our last visit, you became director of Hoover. If you would just reflect briefly on why this place matters, why it's special, and what it means to you to be helming this institution.
1: It matters a lot to have a place that is dedicated to the mission that uh, Herbert Hoover set out for us. It was to improve the human condition uh, through an understanding of the importance of free markets and private enterprise, limited government, and individual liberty. And that's still at the core of what makes a great democracy. And so here at Hoover, we work on the problems that are confronting that great democracy, whether they be problems abroad, like uh, how to deal with a uh, rising China, uh, how to leverage a relationship with uh, India, uh, or problems here at home, how to make sure that every child has a K-12 education that is worthy of the name education, and increasingly, uh, issues of state and local governance and for us, technology and governance. We sit in the Silicon Valley and we think we have some things to say about that. But the thing I'm most excited about is that we've just created a new center for the revitalization of American institutions because these great institutions that we were bequeathed by our founders have served us well, but they're under attack from people who say that they're not worthy because they were born of slavery uh, to people who say they're not worthy because they only serve elites. And uh, we believe that uh, Yes, these institutions may need reform, they may need revitalization, but they are precious. And here at Hoover, we want to find a better way to defend them.
0: One of those institutions is the Department of State, which you led under President Bush. I saw over the summer some advertisements for a master class that you taught with a previous Secretary of State, Madeleine Albright, who passed away earlier this year. I did want to take the opportunity to ask you just about your relationship with her across party lines and her legacy, because it's got to be pretty cool to have forged that relationship as two female secretaries of state, albeit from opposite sides of the political spectrum.
1: And that relationship uh, goes back a long time because Madeline's father was the person who saved a failed piano major and taught her international <laughs> politics at the University of Denver.
0: What a small world. A uh,
1: very small world. And I remember when he said, I have this daughter you have to meet. Her name's Madeline. And so we finally did meet. Madeline uh, was really just a fierce fighter for the values that we espouse, for liberty for all, for uh, standing up to tyranny. Uh, she's maybe best known for her decision that we had to find a way to help intervene in the civil war that was taking place in the Balkans uh, in the 90s. Uh, but Madeleine was just somebody who believed in these values. She fought for them. She was uh, fierce as they come, and uh, I miss her. She was also a very, very good friend.
0: Let's talk about Russia and Ukraine, and Russia analysis is sort of in the sweet spot of your wheelhouse. So where does this go from here? I know nobody has a crystal ball. You can't possibly predict the future, but you know a fair amount about Vladimir Putin. You've been watching this war develop. A two-part question, what comes next in your view? And secondly, what should the United States government be doing in the West broadly and not doing?
1: Well, let me go to the last part of that first. Uh, we are doing the right things. I might have done them a little bit earlier with a little bit more speed. But, uh, but when uh, people are willing to stand up for their national heritage, for the values of, of liberty and uh, for the sovereignty, which, by the way, we help to guarantee – when the Ukrainians uh, gave up their nuclear weapons at the time of the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, when we believe in a rules-based international order uh, where large countries don't simply decide to make smaller countries extinct, which is what Vladimir Putin is doing, uh, we have to support them, and I fully support the military assistance we're giving them. Uh, We've really been uh, helping to train them since the end of the Crimean uh, events in 2014. The military of the Ukraine is turning out to be quite effective, and we need to keep supporting them. Now, what should we not? To I hear a lot of people talking about off ramps for Vladimir Putin. Well, it's Vladimir Putin who keeps shutting off the off ramps uh, You don't annex your uh legally annex your uh, illegally annex your neighbor's territory and then want to negotiate so uh Vladimir Putin who got himself into a war that he thought was going to be easy, now has to mobilize uh young men in Russia to fight this war. They're fleeing the country rather than fight. They, they, I read that one of the most searched uh, elements, articles on, uh, on on the equivalent of Google, is how do I break my own arm? That says something about who's willing to fight in this. And I want to say one thing about the, the big threat that everybody talks about, the nuclear threat. That's from was my question. Putin. Yes. I, I can't say that the chances are zero. I probably would have said that months ago. Maybe it's 10%. That's pretty scary. But you can't self-deter under these circumstances. And you just have to keep reminding Vladimir Putin that to use a tactical nuclear weapon, which would have no battlefield value really for him, his military is doing poorly, uh, not because they don't have tactical nuclear weapons, but because they are badly trained, badly equipped, the logistics is terrible, and they have low morale. He's not going to fix that with a tactical nuclear weapon. Secondly, I'd say to him, winds blow east. Uh, You're going to contaminate your own country. And finally, you really will be a pariah forever. And so I think telling him that there would be catastrophic consequences, not defining them is the right way to deal with this. And so don't try to push the Ukrainians into some kind of negotiation. Give them the upper hand on the ground first. And then if Putin, realizing that he's losing this war, wants to negotiate, they go to the table uh, in the strongest position.
0: He has been wielding energy as a weapon, obviously trying to Leverage Europe and blackmail them in some ways, bully them. On the broader question of energy, OPEC making the announcement earlier that they're going to curtail the production moving forward here, which of oil, which obviously is a huge deal, has implications abroad, geopolitically, also here at home as we look at domestic mm-hmm. energy production and consumption. What do you make of that move? I know everyone's analyzing it through the very near term prism of the midterm elections. Fine. It goes much broader than that, doesn't it?
1: It does. If, if ever we had a wake-up call about the need to fully develop the North American platform from Canada to Mexico through the United States, the gift that it is to be able to be energy self-sufficient and, oh, by the way, uh, to produce enough energy to export to uh, to other countries. If ever we needed a wake-up call, Vladimir Putin has given it to us, and uh, there's a second jingling of that call by what OPEC has done. Um, I, I have to say I've always known the Saudis to do what they need to do for their budget, so I wouldn't read much into this from the point of view of the Ukrainian events. I think this is really the Saudis saying, here's where the price of oil needs to be for us to do what we need to do. Do you really want to be dependent on the Saudis in that way? Do you really want to be dependent on the Russians and the Iranians? Or would you rather have U.S. be the source of those hydrocarbons? I know everybody who believes that climate change is a problem, and I do believe that it's a problem, uh, wants to get as, as, um, as much as we can to a cleaner set of sources of energy. That would be called natural gas. And it would also say that that transition is going to take some time. You're not going to be uh, able to get uh, rid of hydrocarbons in the near term. I would rather those hydrocarbons come from the United States and stable places like this. And you can't send mixed signals to the producers of oil and gas who have long-tail investments. I was a Chevron director in the 90s. The investments that these companies have to make are long-tail investments. So don't tell them, well, produce for seven years, and then we're going to move on to renewables. They have to have some predictability.
0: And And by the way, you're greedy right now, and we want to put you out of business, but produce, produce, produce. But
1: produce, produce, produce. And oh, by the way, we've given you leases, but not permitting. So the energy policy uh, is, I think, the core of where we have to go if we want to have both a sensible energy policy and energy security.
0: Madam Secretary, in your first answer, you referenced a rising China. Let's talk about China and that challenge for a moment. I'm sure you get many questions about Iraq and the legacy of Iraq and the Bush administration, the decisions made leading up to that war. I wonder if you get as many questions about the Bush administration's policy vis-a-vis China. And it's not really unique only to Bush. It's numerous administrations across both parties that I think some critics would say now were perhaps too sanguine about China's intentions and what their designs were. Based on what you know now, what you're looking at now, looking back on your time as Secretary of State, what do you think your administration and others got right about China and maybe not right?
1: I would just say, what was the alternative? Uh, was the alternative to try and isolate 1.4 billion people with an economy that was growing rapidly? Uh, yes, we we and others before us uh, took a chance after Deng Xiaoping. And that was the view that if you could integrate China into the international economy, the international economy would grow as a result, which, by the way, it did. It did. And uh, you would... began to to change the nature of Chinese uh, policy. I never was one who believed you were going to democratize China as a result of of this. But I did expect that they would respect uh, intellectual property. I did expect that uh, that their markets would be more open. And we fought for that every single day. I can't tell you how many conversations I had with Hu Jintao. You're stealing intellectual property. Uh, Open your markets. And so it's not as if people were uh, naive about what was going on with China but the the I do think there was a change with Xi Jinping, and that was that he essentially gave up on any sense that China had responsibilities to the international system and began to just take, take, take to uh, enhance China's uh, growing authority in the international system. And that meant uh, challenging the United States on technology. We're going to surpass you in AI and quantum computing. And, and uh, oh, by the way, we learned that we were way too dependent on supply chains through China for everything from pharmaceuticals to uh, our over-dependence on semiconductors. Right, they stealing our stuff uh, the, and
0: then we so reliant exactly. on exactly.
1: And and that was maybe we maybe people were sleeping on that a bit. And and I give some credit to the Trump administration for raising and to my friend Mike Pompeo for raising that uh, as an issue. I think we are we're now reacting uh, in a better way toward that. And uh, at core, it means we have to get our own act in order. It means we have to make the investments in technology here in the United States because I don't I don't have authoritarian envy. The Chinese can lay out their plans. Authoritarians make terrible mistakes because it's a single point of failure with one man. You know, that zero COVID thing's not working out so well. That one child policy didn't work out so well. We're now hearing that their policy to be indigenous in what they do in terms of chip development isn't working out so well. So if we do what we need to do, I'll bet on American democracy and I'll bet on our distributed innovation rather than uh, what China is doing.
0: But are you worried at all? about American and Western companies becoming in some ways addicted to Chinese money and that huge market, far from perhaps turning the Chinese government in our direction, it seems like in some ways the Chinese government is able to manipulate American companies because they don't want to lose access to the market. Is that an overblown fear?
1: Well, I, I think it depends on what what companies you're talking about. I, I really think, I've, I tell companies all the time, if you have technology and China in the same sentence... Uh, don't go there, because uh, it, whether it's the Chinese wanting to be more indigenous in their development or the American government rightly being concerned about the transfer of sensitive technologies and then ending up in the PLA, uh, the technology sector is going to decouple, and I have no problem with that. You know, if, uh, if Chinese young people uh, want to buy iPhones, I don't really have a problem with that, and I will say something about it. You know, those Chinese leaders have those young princelings, who kind of like Western uh, goods, Um, when uh, the NBA was uh, in the crosshairs because of what the general manager in Houston had said about Hong Kong, I did tell Adam Silver, I said, you know, Adam, they're not going to kick the NBA out. You know why? Because those young princelings, those only children, are not going to watch the Chinese national team play the Kazakh national team. They want to watch the NBA. So I don't want to cut off an entire generation of Chinese consumers from what America can produce, but I don't want to uh, to uh, transfer uh, the, the jewels of technology either.
0: Well, you just mentioned NBA basketball. I think I want to talk NFL football when we come back. Dr. Condoleezza Rice, my guest here at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. It's the Guy Benson Show. Stay tuned.
4: Fresh Conservative Talk. Guy Benson Show.
0: I'm Guy Benson here with Condoleezza Rice. Madam Secretary, since you invoke sports, I would be remiss if we did not talk a little football. Tomorrow night, Colts, Broncos in Denver, Thursday night football, Amazon Prime game. Interesting. Got it. You are now in the ownership group of the Denver Broncos. You went to school as an undergrad in Denver. Is it surreal? Looking back on your life and all the things that you've done, you are now an NFL at least partial owner. That is why.
1: Well, I'm a, a tiny partial owner, but I it am counts. a partial owner. It, it counts. counts. It counts. It counts. Uh, it, in some ways it's full circle so I was the uh, daughter of a football coach who thought he was going to get a boy and who planned to have his all-American linebacker and I'm an only child so I jokingly said I think my father's probably saying and he's gone to the Lord but finally she got an important job you know, she's a football. <laughs> she's an owner of the Denver Broncos I actually went to high school in Denver so my Denver contacts go Denver connections go back even further than that I love it, I love the sport um, I know it has a lot of challenges from player safety to how to think about the relationship to an intercollegiate uh, f- uh, framework that's changing uh, every every day. Uh, but it's a really quite American sport. You know, we're impatient, so we want to clock. Uh, there are not that many things that bring uh, the CEO and the shop steward and the intern together because they're all wearing that Denver Broncos stuff. So uh, I love the sport, and I'm, I'm just grateful to uh, the uh, Walton Pitter Group for the uh, opportunity to be a part of the, the, the ownership.
0: Is there any tension because of your passion for the game? between being now a partial owner of this organization and then a lifelong rabid fan of a different organization in Cleveland? Like, how do you navigate that?
1: It's funny. Uh, it's come quite naturally <laughs> with the Broncos. <laughs> Remember, I did live in Denver for all of those years, and so um, I I love the Broncos as well. Um, I I won't give up on the the Cleveland Browns. I hope they win, except when they play the Denver Broncos.
0: All right, fair enough. Finally, since you mentioned player safety, If there were a Commissioner Rice, which I know has been a longstanding ambition of yours, on a slightly more serious note, we saw what happened with the Miami quarterback, Tua, and the concussion protocols and all of that. What would you recommend the league do? Because that's something where I think non-fans look in from the outside and say, that's crazy.
1: Well, it is definitely a, a, a violent game. We know that it's it 's a game that is uh, what their risk to have the, their, their risk. Uh, I think the league has done a lot over the last years. Uh, I have a note some neuroscientists who are working with the league on on brain injury and how to prevent it. Um, I think teaching people to tackle differently the rules uh, These are all important things to do but but when you have an incident that uh, may or may not be questionable, I think you review it and i read that the uh players association is going to review the circumstances i think that's a good thing i hope the the league will review the circumstances cuz it, it, everybody needs to get better at this player safety has to be uh the highest priority because uh without without the sense that player safety is taken seriously football won't won't last And so I think we all have uh, an obligation to make sure that it's right in the forefront. And I think the League has tried over recent years to do that. Uh, You have to keep, it's, it's one of those things that you have to keep reminding yourself every day.
0: Dr. Condoleezza Rice, former Secretary of State under the Bush administration and now Director here at the Hoover Institution. Madam Secretary, a real pleasure. It's great to see you.
1: Great to see you, and thanks for being with us here at Hoover, and welcome to California.
0: The Guy Benson Show returns after this.
4: You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson.
0: Happy hour continuing here on the Guy Benson Show from the Hoover Institution in Palo Alto, California. Earlier in the program, back in our first hour, we welcomed Dr. Mehmet Oz to the program. He's, of course, the Republican nominee for U.S. Senate in Pennsylvania. Crucial race. He's been closing on his opponent. Here's part of my conversation with Dr. Oz. What is happening on the ground in Pennsylvania that you're seeing?
7: There's a lot of suffering in Pennsylvania over lawlessness. And let me unwrap that a little bit. There is without question an increase in violent crime across the Commonwealth. In some places like Philadelphia, uh, we have more murders than ever before in our history. Uh, The highest per capita murder rate of any large American city. We had our 1,000th carjacking this weekend. You can't see people walking in the street anymore. Parents won't let their kids leave home. And this, not surprisingly, uh, is raising a lot of anger uh, amongst people. I was at a prayer vigil on Sunday night, this thing some of these folks talking about the fact they just can't keep up. And the violence creates long-term post-traumatic stress disorder in the population. It doesn't just get better. So the question is, why do we have it? Well, part of it's because we have far-left liberal politicians like my opponent, John Fetterman, who's advocated for releasing one-third of all prisoners in the state, uh, wants to eliminate life sentences for murderers. He seems to care more about the murderers, actually, than the innocent. You know, on the parole board, which he sits, uh, and he meticulously attends all those meetings, but he has not go to his other meetings. He's always pushing to get folks who've done heinous crimes off, even, even when the victim's families don't want it to happen. And this behavior has, uh, with a lot of voters, chilled them on whether he's doing the right thing. Does he have the right insights? Does he reflect the values of the Commonwealth? At the same time, not just here but across the country, we're having a fentanyl death increase that is shocking. And it's caused because we have an open border, so fentanyl pours across. Not only is, is there a problem because it can come across, but the cartels are making so much money with human trafficking that they can easily invest in, in, in narcotics like fentanyl and pump them into uh, the, uh, the United States. But in addition, my opponent, Betterment, in addition to wanting open borders, wants to decriminalize all drugs and wants heroin injection sites. Now. I went down to Kensington, which is where Rocky used to go. You know, that's where they filmed the movie we would go boxing in the streets. Yeah. Well, that area wasn't a bad area in, in you know, years past. I went to graduate school in Philadelphia. I lived down here. But you can't walk in the street there. Now, you've got people with needles sticking out of their bodies just you know, leaving I mean, hundreds of people living on the street corners, making it impossible for shop owners and their customers to enter stores. People can't go to their homes anymore. And, again, this is an example of far-left liberal, liberal policies gone wrong. And I've been going down there for years to help, but I want to make sure everyone realizes when you have bad policies from far-left political leaders like John Fetterman who are not willing to look at the results of what they're doing, then you've got people who you should not put in the U.S. Senate.
0: Yeah, let's talk about what Fetterman's saying. His campaign is trying to say, oh, these are distortions, these are lies from the Republicans, it's not true, I don't believe these things. The problem is, at least from my perspective, maybe – I'm wrong about this, maybe I'm a novice here, but it seems to me that when you have said all of these things on tape, it is sort of hard to walk away from them, and now he's trying to run away from them, but the record is what it is, his public policies are what they are, and his past statements aren't invented by you, they are simply highlighted by you, I'm not really sure how they get around that.
7: Well, the ads have been pretty straightforward. It's just him talking on camera about things that he's done and wants to do more of. And they have directly led to the crises that we're facing. I haven't even gotten to the economic issues where he criticized Joe Biden for not spending enough money. Uh, he strongly supported tax increases as lieutenant governor and as one uh, the state Biden tax increase to go through. He hasn't paid his own 67 times. Yeah. And on camera says that was just, uh, you know, it just slipped through the cracks. So you can't avoid this reality but there's a separate part of their campaign Uh, he unfortunately had a stroke before the primary they didn't tell people about it in a timely fashion which is a separate issue but he's managed to just keep quiet the whole time he doesn't really campaign much you know he'll go out once a week and do a, a public statement but he won't take questions he has not yet answered questions from voters on the campaign trail has not answered questions from press on the campaign trail hasn't agreed to debate with me until the very end uh, of, of this month, when the absentee ballots are already out in Pennsylvania, and so he 's actually hiding and trying to run the clock out and Although he sort of addresses these criticisms up till recently he 's just been hoping that you know people wouldn 't get it, but Pennsylvanians are smart they 're getting it, and as they understand the, the the real threat that he offers, they start to get upset about it and start to shift their votes in my direction. But for everyone who doesn 't live in Pennsylvania, this is why this race matters to you. not only is it control the Senate for the Republicans but more importantly, if he were to go to Washington, the first thing he wants to do is to blow up the filibuster. This is the kind of person he is. He's really radical about these ideas. So without a filibuster, you lose the last real calming element of U.S. government. You'll be you're getting whipshawed back right to left with a whiplash as a, as the you know, government shifts left and back right and back left again. We don't want that for America, and we don't want to put someone in the Senate – who's going to be a destabilizing force, as he has been here in Pennsylvania during his years as lieutenant governor.
0: It seems like the crux of his campaign is to say the word abortion as often as possible, to say that you're not from the state, that you're from New Jersey, to call you an elitist. And I think the new thing that I saw is that you, like, killed puppies or something like that. I mean, some of this does have an air of desperation about it. When you see those attacks, oh, you know, he's, he's from New Jersey, he's an elitist, what is your response to Fetterman, where a lot of these attacks seem to be personal and cultural about you, not so much about his record or the issues?
7: It's a recipe for failure on his part. The voters in Pennsylvania are wise enough to make decisions based on how it affects their kitchen table issues. Voters are going to decide based on who they think will manage the economy better, crime better, and the the cartel-run drug trafficking issue better. That's how they're going to make their choices. And he can throw as many personal insults at me as he wants. But if I did well in life, and I have, and my father grew up on a dirt floor. I mean, we're very proud in my family that as my dad was an immigrant, we were able to live the American dream. America is a wonderful country, abundantly uh, full of, of, uh, of opportunity, and you have to work to get it. And I want that to be true for everybody else. People are not going to vote against me because I was successful. In fact, I often argue that you know, people don't really care where you're from. They care what you stand for. Do you have the values of Pennsylvania's? There's a reason that the Fraternal Order of Police, both statewide and locally in Philadelphia and the patrolmen, they're all endorsing me, not him, because they know that he's not supportive of the, of their challenges, that I understand what it takes to run into an a environment where it's risky and protect both you and the person you're trying to help and make sure that the of is uh, apprehended. These are all me- important to have law and order in a state so people can feel safe going to work. You know, raising their families, etc. Those are the Pennsylvania values that I stand for. John Fetterman has a far-left perspective on this, and, uh, and the average voter, when they wake up to that, they don't want him representing us.
0: I do want to go off the beaten path a little bit and ask you about the issue of same-sex marriage, which has become broadly popular in the United States, although sort of a split among conservatives in the Republican Party. I'm in favor of same-sex marriage because I'm in one, so I'm definitely for that. I also... Understand some people disagree. We can have differences of opinion within the Republican Senate conference, for example. There are people uh, with both views on this overall question. Where do you come down on the issue of same-sex marriage? And I know that there's a bill that might get voted on perhaps in the coming months, maybe in the lame duck session, maybe in the next Congress, that sort of codifies the institution of same-sex marriage uh, with a vote in Congress not just relying on the Obergefell decision from the Supreme Court that I personally believe is going nowhere. That being said, I'm just wondering where you come down on this. What your stance is on that overall issue?
7: Well, I mentioned at the outset the best thing I did in my life was to marry Lisa. Uh, marriage is the one covenant we sign with society. You know, we don't sign our birth certificate or our death certificate. Marriage is cru- is crucial, and I want everyone to be able to have access to marriage. You-
0: That full interview with Dr. Oz on that very important Senate contest in the Keystone State, available online at GuyBensonShow.com. Also on the free podcast on demand every single day when the show is over. That's also available at GuyBensonShow.com or FoxNewsPodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch. Did producer Christine make it through the Condoleezza Rice interaction without fainting?
4: We'll tell you after this. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Here's the 1-1. One, one. Swung on. There it goes! Deep left, it is high, it is far,
7: it is gone! Number 62 to set the new American League record. Home stretch.
0: Here on the Guy Benson Show, GuyBensonShow.com for the free podcast every single day. For example, if you missed Connalisa Rice, former Secretary of State, you want to go back and hear that interview. It's on the free podcast. It's also up in its own post at GuyBensonShow.com. It'll be up there any moment. That was the voice of John Sterling, Yankees radio play-by-play broadcaster for many years. His call last night in Texas as Aaron Judge finally... Broke the record. Roger long longstanding American League single-season home run record has now been breached. Aaron Judge is the new AL single-season king. Some people would argue he is the rightful owner of the record because there's no asterisk. He's not juiced. There's no steroids involved there. I will simply say, officially, he is the AL single-season home run king. And I think the pressure was getting to him. I didn't think he was going to get it done in the Bronx because everyone was standing for every pitch of every at-bat and booing whenever anyone threw a ball out of the strike zone. And ultimately, he tied the record in Toronto at 61 and then yesterday hit number 62. In Texas, I saw our colleague, Will Kane, was at the game and missed it. He was getting food and he was so mad at himself and I sort of snarkily tweeted at will i said you know in fairness to you it's not like there's some sort of order in which the batters come up where you could plan accordingly they come up at total random will and so i can't believe you would go to the game and miss a judge at bat (laughs) but he did judge hit it out number 62 and the yankees now tonight are hoping for regular season win number 100 that game underway right now and then it's off to the playoffs good luck to everyone's team out there but mostly the Yankees we had to get some baseball in here we talked about basketball with Secretary Rice we talked about football of course with Secretary Rice and I did mention to Condi since I guess we're now very close that producer Christine a longtime sports hater I would almost say certainly football has now become a fan and attended her first game Monday night here in the Bay Area, and Dr. Rice was thrilled by that development, and then asked Christine about it, and you looked like you were going to pass out.
8: I didn't know what to do. I, there is a picture I should post. I'm in mid-shock when she's talking to me about the game, because it was so unexpected. She looked at me, she goes, and I heard you went to your first football game. And I'm like, oh, I, I did.
0: <laughs> yes, you could barely speak. Oh. So Christine, you were, I'd say, as excited for this interview as any guest we've ever had here. Oh, yeah. You went and bought an entire outfit for the purpose of meeting Condoleezza Rice. Of
8: course, that's what you do. I bought do you, a power suit.
0: I mean, I didn't buy any new clothes. I mm-hmm. I put on a nice tie and yeah. jacket. Yeah. It's not a new outfit. That's on you. Okay. <laughs> So, would you like to describe for the audience...
8: I mean, look at this. ...your
0: purchase? Well, they it's, can't. It's a
8: nice... Well, I'm telling you, it's a nice plum suit. Banana Republic's okay. finest. I I, I, think I it's like just, it's a little
0: purple. So yeah. I like that. Go Cats. Yeah. Oh, yes. It's a little deeper and plum right. than, than a real purple. And then you've got the white Yeah, the white button-down.
8: Bef- I've never had a suit before. And I have to say, and I told the boys back in New York and D.C., I don't know how you guys... Wear suits all the time. It is hot
0: in a suit. Mm -hmm.
8: So when you're at a wedding and, like, say the funky chicken comes on, are you going to always take the jacket off before you get on the dance floor?
0: Well, I would run for the hills before I dance to the funky chicken. But for other songs and dancing, yeah, the jacket would come off at a wedding. Can I, Joe? I I don't really know if I do line dancing necessarily. I don't do a lot of group dancing. YMCA? YMCA. It is the easiest dance ever hands up it's just like let's do a song for white people that they can <laughs> do and they can just make the ymca hand gestures the macarena i guess like when i was but a kid those,
8: those songs are the ones you need at the wedding to to get you know and esther on the floor
0: i guess although we didn't do any of that at our wedding and we didn't really have too much trouble with people dancing because we played good music
8: yeah did you I, you didn't really have a lot of elderly people there either
0: not really.
8: We have gone completely. We should really.
0: <laughs> I know. I do. Does it come back? Let's come back to yes, the topic here. Dr. Rice. I was about to make an elderly joke, but I'm not going to do that. Don't. What no. were your impressions of Condoleezza Rice based I, on what you were expecting?
8: Actually, I was expecting exactly how she was. I was surprised. I thought she was going to be more business like, we got to go. We, you know, we're on a schedule. And she was so nice, especially when you guys were taking pictures and I was standing there. She goes,
0: Come on. Yeah, she was warm. Very. all of a sudden, it's it's so funny because you're preparing for an interview like this. I was brainstorming. I was actually dreaming about the interview a little bit last night. Yeah. And different things that I would want to ask. And you only have so much time. Mm -hmm. We had two segments, like, you know, get it in. And then it becomes a hurry up and wait situation. So I came in early. I had my whole legal pad here filled with questions and different phrasings of things that I might try to consider and different topics if we had extra time or follow-ups. And then it's 20 minutes before she's scheduled to arrive. And so we're tinkering with everything, Mm -hmm. just busybodies. Then all of a sudden, I look up and boom, she's right there. I know. And she came out of nowhere. Yep, yep. And then we sat down, had the interview. Again, you can go to the free podcast. You can go to our website, GuyBensonShow.com. For it, you got your photo with the secretary. And I just want to take the opportunity here, and we'll say it again, I'm sure, on Friday. But... After the interview concluded, and while she was on her way out, she just reiterated, it's great to have you guys here. We love having you here. Thank you for coming to Hoover. And that gratitude absolutely flows right back in their direction for them to invite us here basically every year, of course, with the two-year gap due to COVID, but to have consistently come here and have the opportunity to speak to these incredible fellows that they have. And I know that Condi was sort of like, your biggest get that you always wanted, and now you've, now you've checked the box, Christine. So I guess if, if we're invited back, you're going to be like, oh, it should be a breeze to get her back on the show. <laughs> yeah, who's, who's next for you? Because you do get, I, I wouldn't say obsessed, but you have booking fixation sometimes where you are chasing someone down for months, sometimes years.
8: Uh, yes, I've actually just started, e- even while this interview was happening with Condi, I had just started my next big one. Okay, well. Just putting out the feel. I'm not going to say who it is. Okay,
0: you don't want to jinx You anything. know who it is. Oh, do I? Okay, well, tell me after. Okay. I think I might know, but you, you have a lot of different irons in the fire. Well, I'm just going
8: to put this out there. Dr. Rice knows him
0: very well. Oh, well, oh I, I can't imagine who it might be. <laughs> All right, Christine, well. We're probably going to go to dinner after the show in a little bit. I've got TV actually on Fox Business Network in the 6 p.m. hour, so you can see me toward the end of the hour. FBN, the evening at it, and then afterwards we'll sort of regroup and go to dinner. Are you going to go and maybe dress down a little bit, get the suit back into the garment bag and everything? I, I have to wear the power suit out. Oh, you want to? You want to go to dinner in this? Maybe. So I mean, this would be a very fancy look for you out on the town. <laughs> it's a little classier than what the folks are used to seeing you. Oh, at. I
8: thought you were going to say a little classier than what you've been wearing.
0: No, no. (laughs) I will say I've been wearing definitely a very casual look out here. It's California. Yes. And all that. For Condoleezza Rice, you know, I think I had to class it up just a little bit. Nicer shoes. Put on the jacket. I wasn't – I was debating the tie. Put on the big power pink tie. So I, I think it worked out well. And we're not done. We have two more days, two more programs here at the Hoover Institution with fantastic guests as well, including H.R. McMaster scheduled for Friday. So there's a lot to look forward to here on The Guy Benson Show. In the meantime, have a great night. See you on FBN coming up in this next hour. And we will talk to you same time, same place tomorrow. Thank you for listening.